It's a delight to be with y'all this morning as you're turning. Just a word of thanks uh, for the opportunity to be here. So thankful for the ministry of this church to my family as we begin our work in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, such encouragement from members of this body, from the staff leadership here of the church, from your financial support, your prayers, uh, your emails. So we're so thankful uh, for the many ways that y'all support us and the work in Lafayette and the extension of uh, the kingdom in South Louisiana. So I just want to say that word of thanks to you this morning. Uh, also, uh, just by word of housekeeping, if you could do me a favor in your bulletin, if you could go over from where it says Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, if you could write in 25 through 30, because we're going to extend our reading a little bit this morning. And if you can continue across that line and mark out the way to glory. Um, that has changed since I last turned this in, so it's going to have nothing to do with what we're talking about. Actually, it's going to have everything to do with what we're talking about, but I'm not actually going to use the C.S. Lewis quote that I intended to use for that. So, thank you. Housekeeping out of the way. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are here this morning to hear from your word, and as we go now to read from it, Reminded that this is the most important part of what we do because it's your word that is living and active. That my words will fail to express the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. So I pray that you would speak by your word through the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would encourage us, you would challenge us, you would change us, you would remind us of all that you are all that you have done for us and all that you've called us to be in Christ. We pray it for his sake. Amen. Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 25 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I, uh, I really love church planning, obviously, or I wouldn't have done it. But uh, I think the thing I like most about church planting is it really allows me to, to press the reset button on, on life and ministry. In a sense, you get to press a reset button in ministry. You get to kind of pull back and examine those kind of foundational things that a church is supposed to be and what the people of God are supposed to be when they gather together. It, it reminds you of that message that actually unites us. And, and it, it reminds you that when you go to speak to people, I was telling somebody earlier, 60 to 80% of people that walk through a door of a church plan are, are unchurched people. And so you've got to remind them, you've got to speak, you've got to pull the message back a little bit and start from the, from the foundation. When I think what I love most about church planning is that when I do that, I actually have to pull back myself and be reminded of the gospel again. And then I'm reminded that, you know, that's, that's what the Lord's called us to do every day, to preach the gospel to ourselves, to live in the all-sustaining grace that is ours in the Lord Jesus 
Christ and be reminded of that message again and again. I, I was reminded this week of a song by Cadman's Call. Uh, some of y'all might have heard of Cadman's Call. It's sad that some of y'all haven't. Um, I actually look back at the song I was thinking about. It was written in 1999, and I was like, how did that happen? I thought it was like a few years ago. But anyway, 1999, um, they wrote a song, here I, uh, Back Where I Began. Uh, and the chorus goes something like this. Here I am again, back where I began. Trying as I may, I can't get away from you. All of these roads, they lead me to Rome, but they bring me back home. Here I am again, back where I began. It, it reminds me of that great hymn that we sang in our gathering songs this morning. Come now, found of every blessing. When the, the hymn writer says, Lord, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm, I'm prone to leave the God I love. So, so here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And so this morning as we look to the text and we, we hear Jesus' invitation to us to come, it's an invitation for those here this morning that maybe have not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are here with a lot of questions for a lot of reasons that I just don't even begin to know. But it's an invitation for you to, to wander not any longer, to wander no more, but to come to Jesus. But for those of us here this morning who are believers in Christ, who have placed our faith in Him, it's an invitation to that which He calls us to every single day. Come. Come, you who labor and are heavy laden, and find rest. And begin again back where you began. Your only hope. In the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. We want to look at that in three ways this morning, or three pieces of that puzzle this morning. The, the one who invites us to this invitation, those of us who are receiving that invitation, the invitees, and then what is that invitation that he's extending to us this morning? Let's consider the, the one who is extending to us that invitation this morning. In the context of where we are in chapter 11, Jesus is just called down woe upon Galilee and the Jewish people there because they are rejecting what is obvious, the, the return of the Messiah. He's just told them. John the Baptist has sent someone and said, are you the Messiah, the one who has promised to come, or do we wait for another? And he declares that I am he, but the people of Galilee continue to reject and Jesus has just called down woe upon them because it's going to be worse than them for the people of Sodom because of their rejection of him. And in the midst of this calling down woes, he pauses, like he does a lot in his ministry, and just starts praying. And he does it out loud before the people because he means for them to hear the message that he's actually praying. And he says, and he begins saying, Father, Lord of heaven and earth... He's been painting this, he's beginning to paint this, this gospel kingdom vision for his people. And the first thing he, he prays out loud before them is, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You know, Jesus is the one with that unique privilege of being able to call him Father, isn't he? He's the unique one who has been with the Father through eternity past and relates to him in language that we can understand as a father and a son relationship. But he calls to him as Father and says, Lord of heaven and earth. He points to that creative nature of God, that he is that God of creation. And isn't it interesting that all of time begins with this basic understanding. In the beginning, God. 
History is defined, despite all of the rhetoric in our day and time, there is one simple statement that defines all things, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But when he created the heavens and the earth, the first thing he speaks into the emptiness and the And the chaos of creation is what it says there in Genesis 1. The first thing he speaks into that creation creation is light, isn't it? Let there be light. And it's that light that he speaks into creation that allows us to see what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech and night to night it reveals knowledge. It's... The light of his revelation that reveals all the glory of who he is and what he has done and creating this world for what it is. And Jesus is calling out to this God in the terms of Father in order to to speak in those terms that we can understand. It's this relationship between, relationship within the Trinity. And we see that relationship carried forth in John chapter 1. In the Gospels, when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's interesting that Jesus, God's first words in creation are let there be light, but yet the sun, the moon, and the stars are not created until what? Day four. So we find that as God reveals light to his creation and there is the presence of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit all there, that God's revelation of himself in creation, he is now revealing himself again through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the radiance of the glory of God set on display before this. And and as he says in the text here, Jesus said, all things have been handed over to me by my my Father. God has granted the authority of granting light to shine into the darkness of this sin-filled world. That that which he created in perfection that has been marred by sin has now been brought to new life through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us when Paul writes, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is that radiance of the glory of God revealing to us again all who this God is who is working amongst us. And so if we're going to understand the invitation, we're going to have to understand the one who invites us. I love what C.S. Lewis writes about Christ, who is Jesus, says this. I'm not, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Many of you have heard this quote before. They say something to the effect, C.S. Lewis says, that I am ready to accept Jesus, Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I, I don't accept his claim to be God. Well, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, (laughs) or else he would be the devil of hell. See, you you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. This gospel that we listen to, this church that we're a part of, this religion that we've accepted, is, it's, not the, it's not moral teaching from a good moral teacher. It's a God who reveals all things, who defines all things, who gives us a lens by which we are to see, understand, and interpret the entirety of this life. And how does he reveal himself to us? I love Philippians 2. You'll always hear me, if you hear me preach, you'll probably hear me use this text. I can't escape it. He said, how does he reveal himself to us? Well, he tells us to have this mind in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Oh, he emptied himself. And by taking on the form of a servant, he was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross, the one present in creation and says to all things, let there be light, has now experienced the humiliating, humiliating death of death on a cross. Because it was while we were yet sinners that Christ had to die for us. It was because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Love the reset button because you get to be reminded again that those are not the things that we have heard recited a thousand times and placed on a hundred billboards to make our statements. It's a life-giving truth that the God of creation has shed light into our hearts. So who are the invitees? Who does Jesus invite? If that's the one offering the invitation, the only one worthy to do so, who is he Inviting. Well, he says it's those who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, those who are weary and weighed down by sin, that sin outward that affects us, that presses in against us, and that sin inward that wreaks havoc within. When we think of that outward sin that presses against us, we think of that, etern- that external burden of sin laid upon us, of abuse, of addiction, of the violence that we experience, the death that seems to be all around us. We think of abuse in its verbal, physical, emotional, and sexual forms. Many of us in this room raised in homes where all of those were present. Some of those were present. Many of you have faced the reality of those in the workforce. Within various contexts of your lives, I couldn't begin to think or imagine the amount of abuse that we face in this broken world. It's also addiction. That we are now, many of you here this morning, facing all manner of addiction, alcohol, drug, gambling, sexual addiction. It's that thing that seems to constantly be lurking around every corner, waiting to overwhelm you, to overtake you. We are weary. We are heavy laden. But the violence that we face, forget all of these attacks that are pressing in on us personally. Look what's going on around us with the movie theater shooting in Lafayette this past July. I was in in town for a month when it took place. The death of a six-year-old at the hands of police officers this week that we've seen on the news. 
the headlines of, yesterday, of yesterday of a bombing of a Russian, I mean, a Russian passenger jet, a sexting scandal at a Colorado high school. Charges brought against the gruesome Oklahoma State Parade tragedy. 32,000 fatal car crashes, over 1,600,000 violent crimes last year. 32,000 of those fatal car accidents. 84,000 rape cases. The rest of them aggravated assault, about 760-something thousand. And the rest of those, what's left over, are just robbery and petty theft. Internationally, there's unrest in the Middle East and resulting terrorism around the world. There's ethnic cleansing, genocide, wars, and rumors of wars. And that's not even to mention the disease, the cancer that eats away at so many, even in this room. Disease and the disabilities we have to live with day in and day out. Loved ones, losing loved ones. The story last night of the 16-year-old who's lost his life to cancer which is the only reference I will make to the game last night, I promise. The, the painful reality of that 16-year-old losing his life to bone cancer. We are indeed a people weary, heavy laden by all that's around us. But we really can't even process, process that, can we? we? We can't even begin to weigh into that or to wrestle with that because one of the greatest fights that we'll ever face is just waking up every morning and looking in the mirror. See, no one knows the lust, the pride, the deceit, the discontentment, the judgment, and the restlessness that lies within our souls more than that individual that looks back at us every morning in the mirror. Most of us in this room step to that mirror and and they see a Picasso-esque, abstracted and distorted picture because you've walked to that mirror already having been affected by the external realities of sin being perpetrated against you and now you have to look at the perpetrator that now looks back and you can't even process what's inside because of that which has been perpetrated against you. You wrestle to find out where truth lies in the middle of all of that. So it's not hard for us to understand the the words of Romans 10. Romans 3, verse 10, that there is none righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. We've all, to, we've all turned aside, we've together become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's no fear of God before our eyes. We recognize that, we understand it, but those, even wrestling with those, pale in comparison to that greatest weight presented to us day in and day out. See, we can, we feel the constant temptation to to hide, to conceal, to retreat, to protect, to just obscure by going numb, to ignore, or to simply deceive ourselves into lessening that great gulf that exists between us and God. There's one thing we can never seem to get away from, and it's that greatest way to the law of God. Paul tells us in Romans 7, 8 through 12, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I don't even have to deal with it. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. When the law came and it described right from wrong and set the law before me, I saw all that I am and all that this world is and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to me death because of what's inside. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it 
killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is me. It's Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm undone and I live amongst a people. I have unclean lips and I live amongst a people with unclean lips. Everywhere I look at myself and how brokenness and fallenness. See, when we face the law of God, we cannot hide because we understand that through our anger, our judgment, our prejudice, our hatred, according to the law of God, we have murdered more men and women than the sum total of all the vilest offenders on death row. When we understand the law of God, we find in ourselves a lust and infidelity that the entirety of the porn industry could not match. When we come face to face with the law of God, we find in ourselves a covetousness that produces an arrogance not even Donald Trump can match. When we come face to face, I felt like I was getting heavy at some point. I had to throw that little slide in. When we, my, my wife told me on the way here not to do that. When we come face to face with the law of God, we realize that we are lying, vindictive, dishonoring, self-consumed worshipers of the sound of our own voice. We're all together declared worthless because chief amongst all our sins is the fist we clench in the face of God and said, I will not, I will not have this king to rule over me. You will not keep that fruit from me. Oh, but the weight that accompanies that rebellion is far more overwhelming. So we have to talk about that because the invitation doesn't seem quite as sweet, does it? Come. Come all of you who are who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden light. When he speaks of this yoke, it's a mixed metaphor. We think immediately of a yoke placed on the back of a farm animal, an oxen or a cow, and it's meant to be guided by that master, right? It's something to bring that animal into submission to its master and to be controlled by that master, right? My yoke, the way that I want to control and lead and guide you is easy. It's, it's, it's light. And that's, that would be true. That is the right metaphor. But when Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, learn from me. He's actually calling upon the way that mixed metaphor and the way that the Jewish people who he's, whom he's speaking to would use this language of the, the yoke of the law or the yoke of a teacher. So when the children would come of age, they would be put under the yoke of a teacher who would teach them the law. And as they would grow under the teaching of the rabbinic tradition and the law of God, they would come to a place of accountability when they would pass from childhood to adulthood. And that would begin, that language was used to describe that would be the, the, the yoke of the Torah would be placed upon them. It was a yoke of responsibility. They were now responsible to all that the law commanded them. They were passing into adulthood and responsible now to obey all that he has commanded so he's coming saying, learn to me and take this yoke upon you because what you've been doing is taking on the yoke of the, the law and, you've, and it's just been killing you. All it's done is revealed the worst part of you. So take my yoke upon you. What is this yoke? Well, we understand it to be the gospel, but how does he mean for us to understand it? Well, I, I love what he says in the text this morning. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. 
Speaking to us about a childlike faith, a faith of submission. He says it again in Matthew 18, 3 and 4. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He bids us come and submit. The yoke that you're to take on you is light and it's easy because it's simply the yoke of childhood. Of childlike submission to him. What does that look like? looks like a lot of dependence, doesn't it? We enter this world, we, we can't even change our own soil diapers. <laughs> we are in desperate, so dependent upon our parents to, to change us. Not only that, but to keep us from soiling everything else. They have to put the diaper on us to begin with. They have to protect us. They have to feed us. They have to clothe us. They have to protect us from the elements. There is a dependency that Christ is communicating in what it means to come to him. As a child, but we come to him. Children are little sponges, aren't they? They soak up everything. There's never a time when they're not learning. They're observing the actions of mommy and daddy and how they interact and how people around them act. And when they say something, how somebody gives back to them. They're soaking up knowledge in every context because their hungry little minds are just longing for it. We see that again and again in the scriptures as he tells us to hunger and thirst for righteousness as a child. It is in us in this childlike faith that we come to God again and again hungry, longing to be fed by Him. And really what we're constantly doing is our greatest teacher in that process, the greatest influences in that teaching process are our parents. We're constantly longing for their approval, are we not? Longing again and again for their approval. And we're beginning to establish moral categories and and our own worldview because we're longing for their approval and we're seeking to find some identity in them. And in so doing, we're beginning to, to find our own identity in this life. We begin to find our role in the family, in the community, in the world around us. It's the way a child develops. So it's actually quite simple this morning. The question for you, you, do you come to him daily as a child? Do you come to him every day and say, yes, I've got ambitions, goals, and desires, but I have to soak up from you, seeking your approval so that you can give me the kind of identity that I need to understand how I am to interact with this world around me because I will go my own way every time. I will chase after my own goals and my own ambitions. I think he would bid us come as children. I think it's that's at the heart of the gospel. If you remember, in the beginning I said that Jesus was the one who had the unique privilege of referring to God as Father. That's not entirely true, is it? Not if you understand the rest that Christ has purchased for us at the highest of prices. I love the correlation between Mark 14 and Romans 8. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is going to pray. He is feeling the weight of what's about to take place at Calvary. It says this in verse 34, and he said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. I'm going a little farther. And going a little farther, he fell. He fell on the ground and prayed. The Son of God, who by the word of his power, spoke all things into being. Knees buckled and he collapsed because he was literally holding the weight of the world upon his shoulders. 
And his prayer was this, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. We do not have a great high priest who cannot sympathize with our every weakness and infirmity. He has bore every one of our weights. And he has, sit, he has sat there in that moment and goes, oh, that this hour would pass because I am laboring and I am heavy laden with the cares of this world. Listen to what he says in that moment that we do not. And he said, Abba, Father. It's that first time you see Jesus speak to him as anything other than just his father. He cries out to him as daddy. He uses the intimate language of, of daddy. It speaks to this relationship that has been absolutely intact for all eternity. And he cries out to his father, his daddy whom he's intimate with, his father who has created all things by the word of, the power, by, by the word of his power, whom all things is, are possible, to whom all things are possible. And Jesus says, if this cup can pass from me, oh, that it would. Oh, that it would, but not my will. But yours be done. Jesus, the Son of God, cried out to his Abba Father. And in the first time in history, and the only time in history, there was deafening silence. And the first thing we hear spoken after that is this. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, joint heirs with Jesus, provided Provided that we suffer with Him. Provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. My yoke is easy. My burden light. We never hear. We never have to hear the deafening silence of a Father who cannot hear our cries because of the gulf that exists between us and Him. Because of our sin. Because Jesus crossed the gulf and he paid it all so this week as I was preparing I kept coming back to the song come thou found of every blessing and I almost organized my points to the three stanzas um, and as I was studying so I didn't I decided to move away from it but then as I'm studying I promise you five times every hour my little iTunes radio um, channel kept playing come thou found of every blessing so I just refuse to believe those as coincidences. I do have a charismatic background, but I don't tell anybody in Presbyterian. I don't, I don't take them as coincidence. And so I began kind of reading on it, and I read the story of the guy who actually wrote the hymn. And there's actually five stanzas to it, and they're a little different. So I want to read these to you this morning. And I want, to, I want you to hear, and this is what we're closing with. I want you to hear Jesus bid you come. To bid you come. All you who are laboring or heavy laden, who are weary and weighed down by this world and sin and the tragedies and the, react, the violence and the abuse and the struggles, and know that he bids you come and find rest. Listen to what, he, what the hymn writer says. Come thou found of every blessing. 
Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. Sorrowing I shall be in spirit till released from flesh and sin. Yet from what I do inherit, hear thy praises. I'll begin. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy great help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. How his kindness yet pursues me, mortal tongue can never tell. Clothed in flesh till death shall loose me, I cannot proclaim it well. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter. If you're like me, you had to look up the word fetter, so here it comes. It's it's just the shackles, it's the chains that hold prisoners in their place. Some of y'all nod and shake your heads, so thank you for being smarter than me. (laughs) Let thy goodness like a shackle bind my wandering heart to thee. Lord, I'm prone to wander, I can feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Oh, that day. When freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Clothed in in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Would you pray with me? Oh, to grace, how great a better. Daily I'm constrained to be, Lord. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind our wandering hearts to thee. Lord, we're prone to wander. We feel it. We're prone to leave the God we love. Here's our heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. That's our prayer this morning. We hear your call. We are powerless without your spirit. Lord, you have told us all things have been handed over to you and that only the one to whom the Son chooses to reveal himself can come. And as you bid us come this morning, our prayer is that that invitation would be light to our dark hearts, to our blinded eyes, to those of us in this room who have never understood what it means to come, Lord, bid them come, to those who need to be reminded in the circumstances they're in right now, overwhelmed by their sin overwhelmed by the challenges of this life. What would you bid them come? For those of us who just need to be reminded in the midst of our weariness that you are there and not silent. 
Would you bid us come this morning? Would you grow us by your grace? And would you, Lord, help us to sing? To sing. Tune our hearts, Lord, to sing your grace. Your streams of mercy never singing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Calls us to sing, Lord, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.